Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Emmanuel Faith, today is November 11th, Veterans Day, when we're taping this message. And I just wanted to take a moment to say thank you to all the veterans in our church, the people that have served our country and sacrificed for our freedom. Just extend to you my, my deepest gratitude and thanks for the way that you have served our country. And because it's November 11th today, as we're taping, it also means that we're mostly sort of maybe past the election season. It does mean that we've stopped getting phone calls for uh, political candidates and we've stopped seeing advertisements on TV, praise be to God. And I started to notice during election seasons that there's a lot of promises that are made. Promises on what candidates hope to do and hope to deliver and promises of a vision of a future that they want to invite people to step into with them. A lot of promises are made during campaigning times. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but during uh, the elections in 2012, there was a man by the name of Vermin Supreme who ran, and his platform was if he won presidency, he was going to give everybody a free pony. I kid you not. Google it. And one of his quotes was he said he wanted to make the country more of a pony-based economy. <laughs> How awesome is that? But this isn't something that's isolated to the U.S. I mean, people make promises all over the globe when they're running for office. Uh, there was a person in India who was running for uh, a parliament seat, and he promised everybody in his precinct uh, 10 liters of brandy for medicinal usage every single month. <laughs> oh man, what a promise. Uh, there was a person who was running uh, in Zimbabwe for an office, and he promised to build 1.5 million houses in five years. Now, if you do the math, that's roughly 822 houses every single day. That's quite the promise. And then we can agree that most of these promises that are made aren't, aren't kept. In fact, we live in a world where a lot of promises that are made aren't kept. I made a promise uh, last year during the school year that I didn't keep. My son, Reed, our youngest son, had invited me to come to lunch at his school. It was one of the days that they were allowed to have their parents come onto campus, and a bunch of parents were coming on campus for lunch, and so I told him I'd be there. And I don't know what happened, but that just slipped my mind. And so I came to pick him up at the end of school. I remembered that, thank God. But uh, he said, Dad, where were you at lunch? And I, can, I just thought of him sitting at this lunch table waiting for me. I made this promise and, and, I, and I didn't deliver and it haunted me. You may have been made promises that people didn't deliver on. Promises that they were going to stand by you forever, that they were committed to you. Promises maybe that somebody made in, in a business deal that they failed to deliver on. Maybe you have failed to deliver on a promise that you've made. Which brings us to Daniel chapter 9. 
Because Daniel chapter 9 is about a promise. It's about Daniel camping out in a promise. And we just have to step into Daniel's life and world for a moment again as we dive into chapter 9 because we need to feel the weight of what Daniel's feeling. He's been in exile for roughly 66 years. Every dream that he's had about his life or had about his life as a young boy has vanished. It hasn't come to fruition. He's lived a difficult life while rising to prominence in the kingdom at certain points in time and then and then falling when the king ship transferred from one ruler to another. And so the question is, in that instance, what's Daniel doing when it feels like his world is falling apart? Well, listen to what Daniel is doing. He's still in Babylon, but he's under the rule of a different king now, King Darius of the Media Persian Empire. And listen to the way that Daniel chapter 9 begins. Verse 1, It says, in the year of Darius the son, the first year of Darius the son of Ahasuerus, a descendant of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans in the first year of his reign. Now, this puts us back in chapter 6 chronologically in Daniel. If you were to take chapter 9 and put it right next to chapter 6, these are happening at roughly the same time. Remember, that's the chapter where Daniel's thrown into the lion's den because he refuses to bow the knee to worship Darius. And it's also a time where we read that he went to his room to pray. Now, chapter 9 is mostly a prayer, and a lot of people think it's the prayer that Daniel prayed as he was preparing to go to the lion's den. It continues like this in verse 2. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. So, What's Daniel doing in exile? What's Daniel doing when it feels like his world has fallen apart? (laughs) He's reading the scriptures and he's saying, God, I I trust your promises because you've made some promises to your nation. And Daniel, here's what he does. He goes so far as to tell us what he's reading or more specifically, who he's reading, he says he's reading the word of the Lord to the prophet Jeremiah. And don't you love the way that the scriptures just validate each other, that Daniel in exile in Babylon is reading Jeremiah, and we can know what Daniel is reading in Jeremiah. If you have your own Bible, you can turn to Jeremiah chapter 25, but listen to Jeremiah 25 verses 11 and 12. This whole land shall become a ruin and waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. So he's pointing at Israel saying, you're going to serve Babylon for 70 years. Verse 12, then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. So what does Daniel notice as he's reading the book of Jeremiah? He notices two things. First, that this exile was going to last 70 years. And second, that its end would be marked by a transition of power from Babylon to somebody else. And so Daniel's sitting there under the reign of King Darius, who is not a Babylonian ruler. He's a Persian, a media Persian ruler. And he's going, oh, Oh, this is, this is the time. 
This is the promise that God, you have made to your nation, Israel. And here's what Daniel's gonna do. This is so important, you guys. He's gonna take God's promise that he finds in Jeremiah chapter 25, and he's gonna pray that promise back to God. See, God's promises are Velcro, and our prayers are designed to get stuck to them. <laughs> to bring God's word back to God and say, God, this is what you have said. I love the way that Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, put it when he said this, the best praying man is the man who most believingly familiar with the promises of God, who is most believingly familiar with the promises of God. After all, prayer is nothing but taking God's promises to him and saying to him, do as thou hadst said. Prayer is the promise utilized. A prayer which is not based on promise has no true foundation. Don't you love Spurgeon here? Prayer is the promise utilized. I love that because in the midst of pain, Daniel holds on to this prayer. In the midst of disappointment, Daniel holds on to this promise. And in the midst of a world that feels like it's falling down around him, God's promise is Daniel's foundation. See, but Daniel doesn't stop with just understanding that promise. He stands on that promise. He prays it back to God and listen to the way that he steps into the promise. He says this, verse three. And then I turned my face to the Lord God by seeking him, by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning against your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Now, if I could summarize Daniel's prayer up to this point in one word, it would be confession. It's Daniel saying back to God, God, we, we haven't listened. We haven't obeyed. We've been rebellious. And I'm using those pronouns intentionally because they're the pronouns Daniel uses. I mean, go back through this section in verse five, we have sinned. In verse six, we have not listened to your prophets. And the question would be, well, really, Daniel? Because it seems like up until this point in the book, you've been faithful. You've been devoted. You've been essentially a model Israelite following the way of Yahweh, even when it cost you. What's all this, this we business? Daniel, it seems like you should be pointing the finger at your nation saying, you guys didn't do this and you didn't listen and you fell short, but I kept my covenant with my God. No, Daniel steps into this role as representative of the whole nation. It's the same type of a role that Moses played in Numbers chapter 14 when he took the sin of his people to God saying, this is what we've done, even though Moses wasn't a part of, of those actions. You know, it made me think about this church that I, I heard of in, in Portland, Oregon, a place of much unrest right now. And, and during all the, the racial tension that was going on in our nation around the death of George Floyd, this church 
tried to step into the moment and they tried to embody and take to God some of the past sins of the nation. And so what they did was they went to certain spots in Portland where racist actions had been taken against people and, and they, they prayed there. They prayed in those spots. Listen to what they said about those prayer gatherings. They said, Portland has a deep and ugly history of racism that we've chosen to ignore for too long. We're calling on followers of Jesus in our city to gather in prayer, to stand in places where sins against black and brown communities have taken place, to hold space for the pain that's occurred there, to pray and lament to God, turning places of pain into altars of prayer. And in so many ways, that goes against our rugged individualism, doesn't it? I mean, because our, our anthem might be, well, I'm not racist, and I didn't own slaves, and that, that, that wasn't my sin. And, and yet in Daniel chapter 9, we see Daniel taking on the, the sin of, of the, the past, the sin of his people, and, and embodying it and bringing it to God and saying, God, we, we Repent. It's just an idea of what it might look like to apply this principle that Daniel's showing us in Daniel chapter 9. See, Daniel knew that Israel couldn't step into God's promise until they had repented of their sin. He's echoing what the psalmist says in Psalm 66, verse 18. I had cherished, if I'd cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. See, Daniel doesn't blame anyone specifically, but he does name this sin explicitly. And listen to what he says in verse 11. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and the oath are written in the law of Moses and the servant of God has been poured out upon us because we have sinned. He says, God, you've been faithful to your word. You promised that we'd be in exile if we didn't follow you, and here we are. And so we are turning our hearts back to you. We're praying your promise back to you. And I want to invite you to write this down. If you want to experience God's power, humbly pray God's promises. If you want to experience God's power in your life, like we're going to see Daniel experience in his, humbly but with a heart of confession, pray God's promises. Now there's one word that I want to explore a little bit deeper in what I just had you write down, and that's the word humble. It's the word humble or humbly pray back God's promises to him because there's something about Daniel's humility and, and specifically his repentance and his confession that opens him up to receive God's power. See, it's the people who humbly come before God who hear his voice. It's people who approach him lowly that are eventually exalted. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. We'd rather be strong than weak. We'd, we'd rather be rich than poor. We'd rather be exalted than we would be humble. But Daniel's showing us our need, our need to confess and our need to repent, our need to look at ourselves and our nation honestly and bring ourselves before God. 
See, I think it's our pretending and wearing masks that actually prevent us from being able to receive from God and to hear from God. This is a, a human reality. It happens when, when we wear masks and when we pretend and when we don't see the, the junk in our own life, it makes it hard for us to have relationships with other people. If, you've, if you're married to somebody like that or you operate like that in a marriage, you know that that's true. But it's also true of our vertical relationship with God. When there's unconfessed sin that we aren't willing to repent of, it's really difficult to hear God's voice. And when we let go of the need to be perfect, we also let go of the need to pretend. And it's that posture that opens us up to walk into God's promises. So listen to the way that Daniel ends this great prayer. You're going to see his his humility come front and center. Verse 17, he wrote this. Now, therefore, O God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Notice throughout this prayer, Daniel's going to point back to God and say, God, do this for your name, for your sake. Verse 18. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. If you have your own Bible, will you underline that, highlight that, star that, however you want to denote this is important. God, we don't come before you with our own righteousness. We come before you to plead for your mercy. And now as followers of Jesus, we get to come before him with Christ's righteousness to plead for his mercy and his goodness. Verse 19, oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, pay attention. O Lord, act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention. And O Lord, act. Act on our behalf. So here's my question. Are those prayers that God answers? What's God's answer to Daniel's plea for mercy and his cry for help? Well, his answer is yes, at least in part because Daniel prays back the promises of God. Remember, remember, the powerful prayer is grounded in the promises of God. And that's exactly what Daniel's modeling. And there's three ways that God responds to this prayer that's grounded in his promises. Verse 20. It says, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I'd seen in the vision at first, came to me, swift in flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. Now, now just a quick time out. Daniel's been in exile for 66 years. He, he hasn't seen sacrifice in the temple for 66 years. In fact, the temple was destroyed in 586, 587 BC. So it's been done for a long time. And Daniel is still measuring time based on the temple sacrifices. 
He's on this liturgical time clock. He, he hasn't let it go. That's how deep his devotion to Yahweh ran. Verse 22, and notice too, an angel, Gabriel, comes to him. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have come now out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. And I have come to tell you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Now, there's three things that happen as a result of Daniel's prayer. Here's the first. We see it in verse 23. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. So Gabriel, this angel, is coming to Daniel because of his prayer. And he's saying, Daniel, when you started to pray, I was summoned to come to you and to give you this message. But he is there specifically and explicitly as a result of Daniel's prayer. I mean, our prayers, friends, move heaven. Our prayers are not only heard by God, but they're responded to by God. And I'd invite you to write this down. Here's the power that happens as we pray back God's promises. Action is taken. And action, write that down. Action in the heavenly realms, in this case, was taken on behalf of Daniel. You'll often hear people say things like, prayer changes things. And it does. And it changes just me and you as we pray. Uh, Prayer actually changes things because it, it moves heaven, because God responds to our prayers. And as we see here, sometimes even releases angels on behalf of the prayers that we pray. As James Hudson Taylor once famously said, when we work, we work. But when we pray, God works. When we pray, God works. Action is taken. Here's the second thing. It's also in verse 23. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. See, first we see that there's action on behalf of heaven, that God moves in response to his people's prayers. But now we see that, and I'd invite you to write this down, affection is affirmed. It's through prayer and because of prayer that Daniel hears from God through Gabriel, you are greatly loved. Now think about how significant a message that would have been for somebody who's been in exile for 66 years. Somebody who's had hope ripped from him time and time again. Somebody who's been disappointed and probably at times even doubted that God was going to keep his promise and goodness to Israel. I mean, for him to hear Daniel in the midst of all of this, the lion den that's coming in the midst of friends that have been taken away from you and uh, friends who walked into the fiery furnace. Daniel, I want you to know that you are greatly loved. And why in the world does the angel deliver this message to Daniel? It's because that message and that truth has the ability to transform a life. When you hear from the God of the universe that you are loved, it changes you. So you can hear me tell you God loves you, but when you hear God himself tell you, I love you, 
That's a different ball game. My declaration over you that God loves you may inspire you and it may move you a little bit, but God's declaration over you, I love you, will transform you. In fact, did you know that one of the Spirit's roles in the life of the believer is to affirm to them the affection of their Father? I mean, listen to the way that Paul wrote it in the book of Romans. And it's interesting that he writes about the love of the Holy, the love of God being poured out through the Holy Spirit in the midst of suffering. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5 read like this. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, whom has been sent, who has sent and given to us. Now, why do you have the Holy Spirit? <laughs> One of the reasons you have the Spirit is so that you know of the love of God. So can I just speak it over you today, friends? One of the things that honest prayer opens us up to receive is God's love. And there is amazing power in knowing that God is for us, that he loves us, that he died for us, that he's forgiven us, that he's made us holy, that he calls us his children, that he calls us friends, that he loves us. And I just wanna invite you to sit in that a little bit today. Honest prayer causes us to receive God's power and one of the ways that power comes to us is in the affirmation of God's affection. So as we've seen that Daniel's prayer grounded in the promises of God and in a posture of humility results in action being taken on his behalf and affection being affirmed over him. And then there's a third thing we see also in verse 23. Listen to the way that Daniel recorded it. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Now, uh, this term, understand the vision, is a little bit ironic because this vision has been misunderstood and debated for a number of years. But the reason the vision's given is so that Daniel would have insight. And I'd invite you to write this down. Vision is imparted. That's the third thing that we see as a result of Daniel's prayer. Vision is imparted. And if you've ever been around somebody who has a robust prayer life, it seems to go in tandem with the fact that they have a greater vision for the world around them, that they're caught up in the vision that God has of uh, renewing everything and making all things new, that his kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And, and people of prayer seem to usually also be people of vision. And we see that that's true for Daniel, but I want to say that it's true for us too, for you and for me. As we follow the way of Jesus, as we spend time in prayer, we start to grasp God's heartbeat for the people around us, for the nations, for the gospel to go forward, and we begin to become people of vision also. Well, let's look at the vision that Daniel receives from Gabriel. Like I said, it's, it's widely debated. I'm not going to promise today to give you a corner on the market here. I'm just going to step into the conversation and say, study this, read this. And if you disagree with my perspective, that's totally fine. But the important thing is to wrestle with this text and come before God honestly and say, God, what do you want to show us? The commentator 
Wendy Wider said it like this, the 70 weeks, which is the prophecy Daniel's going to get, is the most difficult section in the entire book and one of the most controversial portions of the Bible. So with that being said, let's dive in. Verse 24, Daniel records this, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. So this vision of 70 weeks or 70 sevens um, uh, is spread over 490 years. And as we saw in verse 24, there's six sort of things that are going to happen in those 490 years. You can go back and you can read them and study them yourself. And so many scholars have pointed out, well, a lot of these things that happened or that they say are going to happen, happened in around the second century uh, with that guy we talked about last week, the ruler, Antiochus Epiphanes, that Syrian ruler. So much of this aligns with his rulership and the bloody reign that he imposed over the Israelite people. And yet there's parts of it, like an everlasting righteousness, that don't seem to be fulfilled, at least in their fullest extent yet. So there's different time frames, as we're going to see within these 70 weeks or within these 400 years. They're divided into three different time frames within that whole. And each of those time frames ends with a significant event. Let's keep reading. Verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of anointed one at Prince, there shall be seven weeks. Now, the first of these seven weeks begins with a word that goes out to restore Jerusalem. That's what Daniel records. And we know that Jerusalem was destroyed in 586, 587 BC. And so this word going out is, is essentially in tandem with Jerusalem being destroyed. And most people think that this word going out is recorded in the book of Jeremiah, and it ends, it ends, it says, with an anointed one, a prince. Now, who's this anointed one? For those who are followers of the way of Jesus, we would automatically go, well, uh, that's, that's Jesus. He's the Messiah, the anointed one. And yet that doesn't fit with that timeline. You know what's interesting? Isaiah wrote about an anointed one also. His name was Cyrus. Listen to what Isaiah wrote in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. And he goes on to describe Cyrus. Now, Cyrus is this uh, immediate Persian emperor who follows Darius and releases the people of Israel to go back and to start rebuilding the city and the temple, you can read about that in Ezra chapter 1. Cyrus, by name, releases them to go back. And that happened in roughly, roughly 538 BC. So if you do the math, from 587 to 538 BC, it's 49 years. Seven sevens. It says, and then for 62 weeks, so this is a second subset of weeks within this whole, the 70. For 62 weeks, it shall be built again, speaking of Jerusalem, with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. 
So, so notice, we left off with the anointed ones released to rebuild the wall, and now we skip forward, I think, in time. So these aren't sequential time periods. We skip forward in time to the next set of 62 weeks that began when the city was being rebuilt, and it says, listen, this time period, a long period of time, is going to be a period of trouble for the Jews. And indeed it was, that they were under the rulership of uh, the Persians, and then the Grecians, and then the Romans, and it was a difficult time. Verse 26, and after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing. Now, this is different than Cyrus, the anointed one from Isaiah and referred to in verse 25. This anointed one, I believe, is Jesus the Messiah. And he's cut off. He's he's killed on a Roman cross only to be resurrected from the dead with new life in his hands. It says, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. So these people who are empowered by this prince who is to come, so it's not the prince himself, but he's coming later, destroy the sanctuary and the city. You can go back and read about this in the history books. 70 AD, the Romans absolutely destroyed Jerusalem. Titus led the charge. Not a stone was left of the temple, one on top of another. In fact, Jesus himself prophesied about that day in Matthew 24, verse 2. Listen to what he says. You shall see all these, do you not? You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be one left here, one stone on top of another that will not be thrown down. And he's pointing at the temple going, it's about to come down. Now, we'll see in just a moment that this prophecy that Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 24, verse 2, is directly tied to the book of Daniel. Jesus is going to point us there in just a moment. But the passage continues. In the end, its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there will be war. Desolations are decreed. So I think it's talking about the end of the temple and the end of Jerusalem shall come, but it separates that from the end, and but the till the end there will be wars. Desolations are decreed. See, Jesus pointed to the same time period when he was having that same discussion with his disciples talking about the temple. Listen to what he said. Remember, I said, Jesus is going to tie this to Daniel, and he does. Verse 15 of Matthew 24. So when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, and then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. See, we have the end of the temple reference, but then the end that's pointed to by Gabriel separated from that. Here's how verse 27 concludes this vision. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. For one week. This is the last week of the 70 weeks of Daniel. Some in prophecy circles refer to this as Daniel's 70th week. It happens after the temple is destroyed. But the question is, who is the he that's being referred to? He shall make a strong covenant with many. Well, you have to actually go back to verse 26. And in verse 26, we read, it said, and the people of the prince who shall come. The the, the prince who shall come is the he that Daniel is referring to in verse 27. This is the person that empowered or was the force behind the Romans destroying and wiping out Jerusalem and the temple. But 
He, he wasn't on the scene then. That, that's, that's not the person that did that. It's separate from that. And I would say that this is the man of lawlessness, according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the Antichrist, according to 1 John chapter 2, the, the little horn, according to Daniel chapter 7. He makes a covenant for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. So just like Antiochus Epiphanes did, just like Titus did in 70 AD, this future uh, this future Antichrist ruler will come and will oppress God's people and will attempt to put an end to worship. See, I, I think Antiochus Epiphanes and Titus were a typology of a prophecy that stretched well beyond their own bloody reign and pointed to an eschatological Antichrist that one day will come. Daniel's prophecy concludes, And on the wings of abominations thou shalt be one who makes desolate, until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. My translation, here, here's what Daniel's saying. This person is going to wreak havoc on God's people and really on creation itself, but he has an end. And God will exact his justice and will put an end to unrighteousness and will one day fully and completely usher in his earthly kingdom. Now, Daniel finishes recording this vision and he doesn't respond like he's responded previously. Uh, Previously, he said he was troubled after a vision or he had anxiety because of a vision. Uh, The last vision he received even said he was sick to his stomach for days because of the vision that he'd received. But this one, he's silent on. He, He doesn't say anything. He just finishes recording it and then moves on to what's next. And and I think there's almost this picture of Daniel putting down his pen after he's done writing. And it's almost as though he takes the baton and he hands it to you and I, and he says, well, you get to run with this vision now because it, it applies to you too. And I think the vision begs us to ask the question, what are we going to do with the promises of God? The promises of God that we read in the book of Daniel today, just like Daniel read of God's promises in Jeremiah chapter 25 and 29 in his day, what are we going to do with some of these promises that we're reading from God today? See, I'd invite you to write this down as we begin to close our time together today. We can pray with confidence because God is faithful to his promises. We can pray with confidence because God is faithful to his promises that he will one day renew, restore, redeem. He will one day fully and completely drive out evil and the evil one. He will one day reign and reign supreme. And I want us to grab onto that promise. And I want us to pray back that promise to our God. May your kingdom come and may your will be done right here on earth as it is in heaven. Hey, this week, can I challenge you to pray God's promises? Because it's those promises that are grounded in prayer. When we humbly posture our heart are the promises that God empowers. Here's three things I want to invite you to pray. Promises I want to invite you to pray this week. Would you pray that you could more fully experience the presence of God 
That's based on a promise. Uh, Jesus told his disciples, you and I, that he will be with us even to the very end of the age. Paul promised that nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Psalm 39 declares that there's nowhere you can go that's apart from his presence. Will you pray this week that you can more fully experience God's presence? Second, would you pray that you see his goodness? That you see his goodness Uh, Romans chapter 8 verse 28 says that God is working together all things for good for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. Now my guess is there's some things that have been really painful in your life, but God wants to birth seeds of hope and vitality and flourishing even out of that pain. Would you ask him to show you and to allow you to see his goodness this week? And then finally, would you pray for his restoration and his return. He promises that he's coming back and he promises that he's going to make all things new. Let's grab onto those promises and let's pray them back to God. After all, the early church used to affirm in one of its earliest creeds, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. Friends, if we want to experience God's power Let's be people who humbly, with a heart of confession and a heart of repentance, pray back God's promises. Let's trust that when we pray, heaven takes action, that affection is affirmed, and that vision is given. Friends, may we be people who are grounded and founded on the promises of our great God, because He is faithful. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the example of Daniel. Lord, help us like Daniel did to step into the moment that we live in and help us to see where that moment coincides with your timeline. And God, we want to be the kind of people who trust what you say in your word and your scriptures and who then pray it back to you seeing you move on our behalf, knowing your love and your affection for us, and then having a greater vision for what you want to do in the world, just like Daniel did. Lord, help us live in your way, with your heart, for your glory and our joy, we pray. Help us become people of powerful prayer. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.